John's known as a tough guy. He's so tough, he got us into Iraq. That's tough. And, uh, but he's uh, somebody that I actually had a very good relationship with, but he wasn't getting along with people in the administration that I consider very important. And uh, I hope we, we've left in good stead, but maybe we have and maybe we haven't. I have to run the country the way we're running the country. That was President Trump describing his decision to sack or accept the resignation of John Bolton, his national security advisor, who he mocked as Mr. Tough Guy. It was the latest sign of the turmoil and chaos that is Donald Trump's White House, a place where national security advisors and chiefs of staff and cabinet secretaries come and go for no rhyme or reason other than they at some point get crosswise or trigger the ire of their temperamental boss. But should we really be mourning the departure of Bolton, an abrasive uber-hawk who has urged the president to forcefully confront and risk military conflicts with regimes all over the world? The national security writer Fred Kaplan, writing in Slate, praised Trump's decision to fire Bolton, calling him by any measure among the worst national security advisors in White House history. Was he? We'll discuss with Susan Glasser of The New Yorker, who has closely chronicled the infighting among Trump's national security team. And we'll talk with Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, an unabashed progressive who in a new book is seeking to shine light on Trump's harsh immigration policy and get his response to a new Supreme Court ruling that gives the administration a green light to bar most Central American migrants from even seeking asylum in the United States. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined today with Susan Glasser of The New Yorker, who has just written a piece about how it may not matter who the national security advisor is anyway, because basically Trump is his own national security advisor. So the question is, Susan, are we better off with Trump being his own national security advisor or having John Bolton continue in that position? Well, look, I think Trump is Trump, and he's the through line here. We've had John Bolton, who represents one way to do the job or not do the job, which is to say more or less disregard the conventional national security processes built up over generations with Democrats and Republicans alike. He says, you know, Donald Trump is going to disregard it anyway, so I might as well. He tried to lobby Trump directly on his favorite proposals, provoking the ire, I think, of many of his colleagues. Then he lost their support and Trump's, voila, public implosion. But, you know, he replaced the previous fired national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, the former army general who was a very hospital corners kind of a guy and ran a very tight ship, a very, in some ways, conventional national security process. The problem there was that it had very little to nothing to do with the president himself. And as Donald Trump has made very clear from the very beginning of his administration, he's the only one who matters. So, you know, you can have it round, you can have it square. Uh, <laughs> Trump is the issue, not particularly who his advisors are. But Bolton, look, um, you know, the immediate trigger for Bolton's departure was his descent from the Afghan peace deal. And actually, that was one in which I think most people, left and right, Democrats and Republicans, would agree, at least as far as bringing the Taliban to Camp David, was a really bad idea, especially on the week that we're commemorating the anniversary of 9-11. Was this a case where Bolton actually was right? Well, look, I, you know, it seems like a no-brainer, frankly, and it, it is a measure of the sort of naked emperor syndrome of those 
surrounding Trump that Bolton is being held up as the one guy willing to, you know, tell the president that essentially what appears to be an idiotic idea on its face is idiotic. And Mike Pompeo, the vaunted first in his class at West Point Harvard Law School graduate, apparently didn't tell the president this was a stupid idea. And the vice president of the United States not only didn't tell the president this was a stupid idea, but the mere reports that he might have also dissented from this caused him to issue what might be one of the most slavish and obsequious tweets we've ever seen, in which he not only denounces fake news reports that he might have disagreed with this, again, idiotic idea, but that, uh, you know, how dare we even suggest this was possible. So, Again, you know, what's frustrating then on the other side is you have liberals who continue to be confounded by how to oppose Donald Trump in a way that, that of course, plays right into Trump's hands. Come on. Well, you don't have to endorse John Bolton's entire agenda to be able to say that perhaps the man who is a smart ideologue and a, an experienced bureaucratic fighter might actually have been able to say something sensible to Donald Trump without meaning well, that everything that he does is well, correct. Let me ask you this, Susan. You, you mentioned Mike Pompeo a second ago, and you wrote a really insightful profile of Pompeo. came out just a few weeks ago in The New Yorker. And by the way, I think this is a guy who's accumulated an enormous amount of power in this administration, and most people don't know that much about him. So it was an important piece in, in that respect. But I guess my question is, you got someone like Pompeo on the one hand, who you kind of uh, really brilliantly portrayed as this uh, sycophant. The, the quote that like leapt off the page in that story was, I think, some former ambassador who told you that he was a heat-seeking missile for Trump's ass. <laughs> and basically, he's pretty pliant. I mean, he just seems to do what Trump wants. And then on the other side of the end of the spectrum, you had this ideologue, Bolton. And I was saying before the show started that in some ways you have to have a kind of a grudging respect for Bolton. At least he's got the courage of his convictions. At least he did oppose things. At least he did speak up to Trump. So I guess my question for you is, what's more dangerous, the sycophant or the ideologue Well, the, when it comes to Trump? The sycophant is the one who's still there. So uh, <laughs> make of that what you will. Listen, that's exactly why I wrote the piece, because there wasn't a piece. And how is it that somebody who in, in some ways is so little known and certainly had not been really vetted in any way, our system had failed in some ways is what I found in reporting this piece, by having someone go from complete obscurity a decade ago, he runs for his first race uh, for Kansas Republican Party chairman, finishes three out of three in that race. And yet here he is, the Secretary of State, Many people had said to me, you know, Mike Pompeo has already become the most powerful person in the Trump administration. And this was before the ouster of John Bolton. In Trump's world, it's not about ideology. It's about serving the leader. And, you know, we have, I think, many unusual facets to this presidency, but certainly the fact that we have a president with the most authoritarian personality inclinations and instincts of anyone who has served in that office. And so that requires a particular personality type to serve him. And so I think it's been misportrayed a little bit, the idea that there was this fundamental policy and ideological clash between Trump and Bolton that, that led to this. It's true that Bolton disagreed with pre the president on a long list of policy areas. I mean, it's astonishing. But you know what? Donald Trump knew that when he hired him, and it was the hubris right, of the man. He was man. on Fox News all Absolutely. the time. He's never hidden his views, right? And obviously Trump is a uh, dedicated viewer of Fox, so clearly he knew. Yes. He I knew. Mean, you know, look, it, this raises the kind of the, the larger question about we know that Trump is, a, is transactional more than uh, ideological. But we also know that he's had many, many opportunities to be much more kind of aggressive in terms of using the military, going to war, and he's pulled back many times, you know, most recently in this uh, confrontation with Iran, where I think the planes were actually in the air, and he pulled them back. Looks like he wants to talk to the Iranians again. He's obviously been talking to the North Koreans, and, and obviously bringing the Taliban to Camp David, that idea. But ultimately, does he have a doctrine? Is there a Trump doctrine when it comes to his foreign policy? You know, I always say beware of, you know, anybody bearing doctrines in, in foreign policy analysis, not just for Trump, but for anybody with a capital D. Usually our presidents, even ones more conventional than Trump, are highly reactive and flexible. And Obama is a great example of that. But to your point, 
Trump does, I think, want to pivot to deal-making right now in diplomacy, if only because he perceives himself and his own brand to be at risk. He thinks that deal-making is central to his own view of himself and also to his political identity. And you know what? He doesn't have any deals. He has failed so far. He has blown up deals. He hasn't made them. He's running for re-election. So I think the real risk factor, again, I feel like the conversation is really misportrayed about Bolton. It's not about, you know, Donald Trump who's going to like invade Iraq. That's the last war. That's what George W. Bush did. And Trump has made very clear. The risk factor right now in international politics is that Donald Trump makes bad deals. He's desperate. He doesn't care about the details. He doesn't know anything about these places. And the risk factor and the, the people who are trying to constrain him, he is cozying up to a rogues gallery of the world's bad guys and dictators. So and who, that's so the who issue. Is left, who is left who can deftly and competently manage Trump? Because it doesn't sound like it's Pompeo. Well, I mean, Pompeo's friends and defenders, of whom I I spoke with quite a number in the course of doing my reporting, there is, I would say, a subset of the old Republican foreign policy establishment, the very conservative part of them who believes that Pompeo is, in fact, managing Trump, that he has done so with a, a different and perhaps more realistic assessment of what is required to survive in his circle in order to be able to manage him. So there is a subset of people who believe that, but it's a dwindling subset. And I would say that this Camp David idea and the, and the notion that Pompeo didn't try. Exactly. I would imagine, I would, I would like to go back to some of those folks with whom I spoke in the wake of this and say, do you still believe that? In answer to your question, uh, Trump doesn't have a doctrine. He has instincts. And I think that's about it. But that said, let's, let's just drill down on Bolton for a minute, because before we lionize him too much, yes, yes he was yeah. right about really stupid idea to bring the Taliban to Camp David. But this is a guy who is a hardline ideologue. He, he sold Trump on the idea he can get rid of Madero in Venezuela. That didn't work out so well. He's pushed a confrontation with the Iranians. He's pushed a confrontation with the North Koreans. And, you know, there were a lot of people who saw him as a really dangerous dude in a a very sensitive position. So, you know, between grant the chaos, grant the turmoil, but between the Trump's instincts of trying to move towards diplomacy and Bolton's hardline ideas about, uh, you know, risking a military confrontation all over the world, I think a lot of people would side with Trump on that. Well, you know, Michael, again, I just, I really think people should be careful about making everything so zero-sum. John Bolton is not either terrific because you happen to dislike Trump so much, or he's, you know, the most evil person who's going to get us into war. I agree absolutely with your view of him as an ideologue who took this position in order to advance as much of his personal agenda as opposed to Trump's and by as the way, he could. But, but listen, conf- again, let's be more sophisticated in mm-hmm. our analysis. I, I just, I don't understand why Trump's opponents have to either, you know, say that this guy is so great because he opposed him or he's so terrible. The bottom line is that he was a flawed vessel who was a terrible fit for his boss, who took the job opportunistically. And frankly, you could say that, in fact, he engineered perhaps his own departure, understanding the unsustainability of this. What if this wasn't a murder but a suicide? You know, it seems to me that that Bolden has come out of this in some ways with a a very positive gloss uh, in the sense that he's now getting credit for having opposed this. But but again, it's like, let's just take our own ideological views of Bolton aside, just analytically, the issue here is Trump. And for example, you talked about Venezuela, which Trump has also talked about as a critique of Bolton. And he had his rant that we heard a little bit of at the beginning of this program, Mr. Tough Guy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in part of that rant, he also complained basically that he had essentially had like nutty views on Venezuela. And and Trump has been widely reported to be bitter at uh, Bolton for selling him on a notion of essentially easy regime change in Venezuela, which hasn't materialized, uh, quite an embarrassment to the United States foreign policy. And in any other administration, frankly, it would have been a much bigger deal. But there's so many (laughs) issues. We kind of lost this one. However, here's what I would say to you about that. Clearly, that was the case. And it shows overall a very unsophisticated foreign policy team. That includes Mike Pompeo, by the way. 
way. And most significantly, it includes Donald Trump. Not only did Donald Trump go along with that, but before John Bolton ever came into the administration, Donald Trump was the one who was musing out loud about military intervention in Venezuela. He did that in his same infamous moment in August of 2017 when he talked about fire and fury against North Korea. So give me a break. You know, like he didn't have to go along with this. And by the way, it was his State Department as well as his national security advisor who pushed him on this. Not only did Donald Trump publicly muse about military intervention in Venezuela, but I reported at the time a month later at the September UNGA meeting in 2017, he had a dinner with all leaders from Latin America. And you know what he talked about? He said, my guys don't really want to do this, but what do you guys think about military intervention in Venezuela? So let me be a little contrarian here because so much of the analysis, the post-Bolton departure analysis is about the chaos, about the lack of process. And so I was sort of, you know, noting uh, in the New York Times the next day, Elliot Cohen, who had been part of the Bush administration national security team, lamenting the lack of process in the national security, in Trump's national security office. Um, And uh, I heard Samantha Power doing much the same thing on Rachel Maddow the other day. Okay, so Elliot Cohen, who was part of an administration that got us into the war in Iraq, there was plenty of process, you know, under Condoleezza Rice in the decisions to basically make the most disastrous foreign policy decision in uh, in decades. There were plenty of foreign policy failures under Obama, the rise of ISIS, the lack of response to the disaster in Syria, Libya, on it goes. So, I mean, you know, is process really all that important if the outcomes are as bad as they have been in recent presidencies? You know, it's a great question and one that we can go around in circles on, but I think it's also embedded in it is a bit of nihilism as if nothing actually matters. First of all, you know, the big decisions are the decisions that the president of the United States has to make, you know, with or without a good process, right? And so the decision to go to war in Iraq was a bad decision. And in some ways, it actually subverted the process that they had. It was later, after, in fact, the embarrassments and humiliation and, and, you know, both of you have written about this in, in very compelling ways. It was later in the second term of the Bush administration that there was both more of a real process and more of a reality-based recognition of the mess, I think, that we had gotten into. So again, I wouldn't conflate the two things. You can have a good process and a bad outcome. You can have a bad process or no process and a good outcome. Uh, right. You know, and, and, and what and is you... it that you can expect reasonably from your national security team and policymakers versus what ultimately is the responsibility of the president, him or herself. Right. The fact that bad decisions get made with process does not mean that... No process, <laughs> therefore, it leads to good right, decisions. Right, exactly. And, so and, 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 let's and, not and have Bush, any deliberations. Well, let's right, just, exactly. You know, and in the Bush example, decisions on I mean, the fly. You know, yes, they yeah. did. Have, right. they, you know, Condoleezza Rice was a uh, national security advisor in the mold of a Brent Scowcroft, the honest broker, right? But she was subverted the entire time by Dick Cheney uh, and his people, and they cut out the State Department. So there was no real process. Well, there Uh, were national security meetings. And by the way, there were people who had warned accurately at the State Department and elsewhere of the kind of chaos that would ensue if they proceeded in the in exactly the way that they There was did. a Potemkin process in that first <laughs> term of the Bush administration. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, Fair you enough. know, yeah. uh, during the during the Obama administration, you know, they, they did they had, you know, they were all lawyers, they had right. more process than in anyone and it prevented I think some pretty... By the way, I just wanted to point out, uh, back on Bolton for a moment, I remember Bolton couldn't even get confirmed as UN ambassador because he had clearly distorted the intelligence on Cuba and berated analysts who weren't telling him what he wanted to hear. So, you know, that... In a lot of people's minds, that disqualified him from higher office back then. Absolutely, and that was Republicans yeah. who thought that. And by the right. way, here's another thing we haven't talked about with Bolton. But you know, maybe someday he'll be a guest on your podcast because it seems to me, of all of <laughs> the people, yeah, he right. uh, is the most likely to pop. Well, he's already uh, done it. Yeah, he's he really already did he it said, on, on Twitter. I mean, you know, and you he'll wrote have my say. You wrote about Jim Mattis just uh, just a little while ago, <laughs> who's got a book out, right? Who's I think there's a term in uh, Orthodox Judaism which is like sort of an acceptance of silence. And that's what he's doing. He wrote this book, which uh, is the opposite of a tell-all. And Bolton obviously is taking a very uh, different 
attack already going on Twitter to get his narrative out to say that he quit, he wasn't fired. And he said twice to uh, reporters in various messages, I will have my say in due course. Well, I think we're all waiting for his his say in due course. So Susan, what happens next? I mean, Trump said he's going to appoint a new national security advisor next week. The survivors on the national security team, Pompeo, clearly were gleeful. They did that briefing right after the news broke, and they could barely contain their glee. So what kind of national security advisor follows Bolton? I'd have to think that Pompeo is whispering in Trump's ear. Uh, what do you think is going to happen next? Well, it's fascinating. You, It was less than 24 hours before uh, the rumors, which I had already heard this summer, interestingly, as there was widespread speculation that Bolton would be pushed out or would leave. There were already these rumors inside the national security kind of Trump sphere. Maybe Pompeo would pull a Kissinger and would somehow be appointed to both jobs. Most people think it's wildly unrealistic when you look at how the actual job of national security advisor has evolved that it's crazy to think you could be dual-hatted in this day and age. And by the way, Mike Pompeo is no Kissinger. But And, and also, <laughs> Donald Trump is no Nixon. Uh, we remember Nixon for his sort of devious domestic political machinations and the illegality of Watergate, but he was a foreign policy president with great expertise honed over decades and a huge interest and flair for the subject. Uh, so, you know, obviously, this analogy is, is almost an absurd one. And yet, to me, it was so fascinating and revealing feeling that this was already kicking around in Trump world. And I heard about Wait, it this absurd, summer. absurd? Crazy? I can't imagine <laughs> that happening in this administration. Well, I have to say, like, the, the writer's regret is eternal. Uh, and of course, in an 8,000-word piece, the idea that I had to cut that paragraph out, which I did okay, from well, my you're, piece, you're breaking that speculated here on, on that. Uh, but so interestingly, it took less than 24 hours for that to emerge as a rumor. And in fact, Kellyanne Conway, the White House counselor, came out and said, yes, Trump is considering that along with a list of, she said, five other candidates. The only thing crazier is one of the names on that list, Rich Grinnell, the ambassador to Germany, who is a total bomb thrower. Uh, The only thing I can tell you about him that I know is I first met him introduced by one Ann Coulter, giving you his good friend, giving you some idea of where he's coming from. The idea that he might be the national security advisor is um, pretty scary on its face. I want to switch gears for a moment. You're a former Moscow correspondent and we had a a kerfuffle this week about a story first reported by CNN uh, and then reported somewhat differently by others that the CIA had to exfiltrate a top spy who was instrumental in some of the intelligence about Russian interference in the presidential election. As originally reported by CNN, It was because of concerns that Trump might actually leak the name in some way to his friends in Moscow. Subsequent reporting by The New York Times and others say, no, that wasn't the case, that in fact they were worried about trying to bring him out as early as 2016 under Obama. Your take on this story? We have so politicized everything having to do with intelligence and especially with Russia and intelligence in this Trump context that, you know, of course, it's hard for you or me or anybody to really evaluate this this competing claims and counterclaims. And, you know, Trump has been at war with the basic notion of you know, a a single truth when it comes to intelligence because he's so concerned to distance himself and to illegitimize the foundations of the very serious questions that were raised about him and why Russia was so supportive of him in the 2016 election. So this, I think, this story has to be seen in the context of that, you know. I I agree with you, but I got to say that if you're going to put, if you're CNN and you're going to put Trump in the middle of this story— Just to your point, you better be pretty damn Correct. sure you've got it right. That's because right. all you do otherwise is undermine, is fee- is, is, uh, undermine all of us uh, and feed the perception yes. that it is that we are a fake media. And, and that's and really been, dangerous. And if you've been watching Fox News yes. in the last couple of days, they've been playing this up to the yeah. fare thee well. Another case of fake news by CNN injecting, you know, putting it on Trump when clearly there would have, would have been legitimate reasons to be concerned about this guy completely independent of Donald Trump. Now, the Russians have since put out right. a name. I guess this is a guy who had been an 
aide to the then Russian ambassador in Washington. They're suggesting he was a nobody, a coffee boy, to right. coin a phrase. Yeah, Sergei and, Lavrov was, you know, the yeah. foreign minister was laughing, laughing right, publicly right. about uh, this. What do you but make of course, of the Russian Russians? denials obviously are, are not very much to be taken seriously. I do take much more seriously the, you know, the reporting of our colleagues in, in the Times and elsewhere, suggesting there's there's a different version of this story. Again, it's the assault on the notion of, you know, a one agreed upon set of facts. That that is what we're coming out of this very, very unfortunate moment in American political history with. And I just think that's so damaging. I also think that it is a reminder of how quickly, like like a stone, the Russia story has sunk <laughs> the uh, into thing. oblivion. I mean, I just Although even today, by people who are so speak, critical right. of Trump, and as we speak, they the are House up Judiciary on Capitol Committee, Hill, right. you know, agreeing upon terms that will guide whatever they're calling it—an impeachment inquiry, an impeachment investigation. But you know, what really leaps out, right, is that again, to me, Democrats have been so singularly unsuccessful at finding a coherent and powerful way of voicing and registering their concern about what's happening with Trump in the country. And, you know, you have Nancy Pelosi so defensive, like, I won't talk about what we're calling it or what does it matter what it is. And other Democrats saying, I don't even know what's happening. How can I explain this? to my constituents. I mean, again, the Russia thing, they seem to be pivoting to, in fact, a new theory of the case, which is to go after sort of Trump's business entanglements and his uh, essentially monetizing of the office of the presidency. And, you know, that obviously is an important subject for investigation, as were the Russian intervention in the U.S. election and these very, very serious allegations of presidential obstruction in order to cover up that investigation. I'm wary. I obviously don't know what will happen, but I think there is a through line between the first half of this conversation and what we're talking about right now. And that is beware of the sort of fighting the last war syndrome. And just like I don't think that with Donald Trump, the risk was ever that he was going to invade Iraq all over again or some other comparable thing. But in fact, he might just destroy American leadership in the world in a whole different way. It strikes me that Democrats have been fixated on the impeachment of Bill Clinton to the, ex- to the at the uh, no of oh. Bill Clinton and shaping their political analysis of what to do about Donald Trump to the expense of any other historical analogy in a way that uh, almost certainly is is greatly to their detriment. You know, Bill Clinton, let's be clear, was like the poorest, uh, you know, president we'd had uh, in office in many years. We're talking about a president who, you know, seems to be enriching himself in the course of the presidency. Although I mean, Clinton did pretty well after yeah, he left office. I know, office, but, we're, but the point is that yeah, we're obsessed right. with fighting the last war. Yes. And I think that that has really been intellectually lazy on the part of Trump's critics and probably to the detriment of their political success. I think the war that how Trump is tearing down institutions and tearing down facts as we as we know them and have come to rely on them. And you you talk about how the Russia story, uh, the spy story was obscured by Bolton. But there was another really big and I think really important story that was obscured maybe by the Russia story, which is what was going on at NOAA with the politicization of the reporting of the weather. Um, and, you know, this idea that, that Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, is, is calling uh, the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, in Greece, telling him, you know, you got to go after the, these uh, weather bureaucrats because they're contradicting the president. And then he calls up the uh, acting head of NOAA at three in the morning. Yeah. You know, what are these conversations like? Can you <laughs> imagine what this must be like? And, you know, yeah. people laugh about Sharpie Gate, but at the end of the day, That's right. you know, if you're willing to cook the books when it comes to the weather, then what else are you going to do? Dan, you know, I'm going to so start cooking the books when it comes to, you know, the jobs reports. You know, it's craziness. Dan, I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, you know, I'm sure you guys have both seen the movie The Death of Stalin. That was the thing that I couldn't help but thinking about as soon as I read this report on Monday afternoon was the first time uh, that it came out that, you know, Wilbur Ross had called these weather bureaucrats and essentially said, don't believe your stinking data. The president of the United States can have any damn weather he wants in Alabama. I don't care if the pictures show that it's sunny there. There's a hurricane there. And, you know, look, this is... Soviet. To me, that was the thing that leapt out at me. Uh, The weather is what the leader says that it is, not what it is. Right. 
Right. I'm um, not going to believe when Trump starts talking about agricultural outputs and five-year plans. <laughs> I'm not going to believe him, okay? Okay. On that uh, depressing note, Susan Glasser, thanks for joining us again on Skullduggery. It's so great to be with you guys. All right, we are now joined by Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, also the author of the new book, America is Better Than This, Trump's War Against Migrant Families. Senator, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. So you have done as much as anybody to publicize the uh, Trump administration's family separation policies and many other aspects of uh, what it's been doing at the border. So I want to start out by asking you about the Supreme Court ruling yesterday. Yesterday, which gave the uh, Trump administration a green light to pursue its policies, which essentially bars almost all Central American migrants from applying for asylum in the United States. The president today tweeted, big U.S. Supreme Court win, in capital letters, for the border on asylum, exclamation point. Your reaction to the Supreme Court ruling? This is an extremely uh, disturbing ruling. President Trump has often pointed out the dangers of Mexico, and yet here he turns around and say this is a, a safe harbor where people have to apply for refugee status before they can apply in the United States of America. And we absolutely know the challenges for refugees who are stranded across the border. So this, it, it's very disturbing because the basic principle of the Refugee Convention is someone's fleeing persecution and knocking on your door, you give them safe harbor and a fair chance to present their case. So are there steps that the Congress can take on this matter? Obviously, it's politically difficult for somebody with your perspective on this, but um, uh, is, is there any remedy? Well, there could be a legislative remedy, but it's not going to happen as long as the Republicans control the, the Senate. Uh, the Republicans, uh, many of them uh, weigh in privately and say they were very disturbed about child separation, but they wouldn't lift their voices. Some of them were very disturbed about the idea of the in indefinite imprisonment of refugee children, which the administration has been ferociously backing, but they won't raise their voices, and they certainly won't raise their voices on this. But this case, the Supreme Court's decision addresses this issue of the injunction, and it lifts the injunction, but the underlying legal matters are still being litigated, right? Is this, or, or is, is this no, issue that's, com that's completely correct. However, often when you have a decision 7-2 to lift the injunction, it's indicating the direction the court's likely right. to go. Right, Yeah. Although we don't know it was a 7-2 vote. We know that Two Supreme Court justices, Sotomayor and Ginsburg. and Ginsburg, registered their dissent, but there was no formal vote, so um, it uh, could be. Uh, point taken, but the fact that others didn't register their dissent also speaks loudly. Right. So look, your book is about your anguish over what the Trump administration has been doing at the border, and you sort of famously went down to uh, McAllen, Texas, to try to uh, get into one of the detention centers. Tell us how you got into this issue. Well, I was sitting here uh, in You're this. You're not on the border, being from Oregon, right. so. Right. <laughs> I was yeah. sitting here in this room, uh, catching up on uh, past news, and I was reading Jeff Sessions' zero tolerance speech. And as I read it, I wasn't surprised about the title. Six months out from the election, you kind of expect a Republican administration to be doing things that sound like tough on crime, and zero tolerance fits in that category. And as I read the details, I said, whoa, wow, it sounds like they're planning to deliberately traumatize children to discourage immigration. I'm sure they're not going to do anything like this. No American administration would do this. No American government would support deliberately harming children. And someone on my team said, well, there's one way to find out, go down to the border. And I thought, absolutely. And uh, so that following Sunday, uh, flew down, flew down with uh, Ray Sicaro, my communications director. And we had two pretty profound uh, experiences within a short period of time. One was going into the Customs and Border Protection, CBP facility, and being the first member of Congress to witness the children having been separated from their parents and sorted into 30 by 30 foot chain link cages. And to stand in front of a cage full of young boys and see them lining up by height and the smallest in front, just knee high to a grasshopper, maybe four years old, and to ask, these children were taken from their parents and to hear, well, not all of them, 
meaning some of the older ones had crossed the border by themselves. But yes, the majority of them was the answer. And um, just being stunned that it really was, was being implemented in this fashion. And then a couple hours later, going up the road to Brownsville to try to get into a former Walmart where we heard that hundreds of boys who had been separated from their parents were being warehoused and uh, tried to get in and uh, were, we were not allowed in. It was a situation where the, we had asked for permission, official permission, been rejected, asked for a waiver, been rejected, decided to knock on the door anyway because, after all, you have a facility like that, there must be a lot of staff. Certainly one can come out and talk to us or perhaps give us a tour. And instead of uh, proceeding to talk to us, they called the, the police, and I saw police cars arriving thinking, well, now this is about to get really interesting. And was it at that point that you decided to go live on Facebook? Well, we had uh, actually started and hooked up to Facebook on our way approaching the building. Knowing that we'd asked for permission and already been turned down, we anticipated it would be a challenge to get in the door, and we thought we should document for America the secrecy with which our government was encasing the results of their strategy of traumatizing kids. And it turned out to be powerful in part because they did, in fact, not let us in and did call the police. It actually, I guess you could say it served our purpose because it helped publicize what something really wrong must be going on if you're not willing to talk about it with a member of Congress. And it got shared tens of thousands of times and viewed by a, a couple of million people. Or a couple yeah, of, yeah, yeah, a couple, couple million people yeah. uh, saw it. So it's uh, one of those rare cases yeah. that something a member of Congress does uh, goes, now, goes viral. Now, you would subsequently learn that this policy actually was being implemented shortly after the president was inaugurated, right? That this was something that was going on that no one knew about. That's right. Just 13 days into the administration, of course, there are so many things going on, but it was the first indication that this policy was being pursued. The following month, it was uh, then Secretary Kelly, head of Department of Homeland Security, who gave an interview and confirmed that they were planning this policy. And it was the following month after that they launched a pilot project, though that was secret, in the San Diego sector. So this was going on from early on in the administration, but it went underground in, in April 2017 until May of 2018, which raises an interesting question. Why did it go underground? And then why did the administration pull it out from underground and, and launch it on a full scale? And I would say the answer is that the, the president decided that this was an effective way of politicizing immigration six months out from the 2018 election. You say politicizing, but the president ran during the campaign with promises to crack down on illegal immigration. This was an attempt, however um, brutal, of fulfilling that promise, right? Of, of doing what he told voters he was going to do during the campaign. Well, let's look at it this way. The, the, the administration went secret on it because they were uncomfortable with the notion that America might respond in a negative fashion to the deliberate injury to children. But why did they decide to go public at the time they did? It is the time, largely, when the Republican Party runs on fear because the American people tend to trust them more than Democrats on security issues. So you have to create a security fear. And uh, this time around, Ebola wasn't going to, to work. And ISIS wasn't going to work because it largely disappeared. And the argument that Dems were taking guns away from uh, Americans wasn't going to work because Republicans were in charge of all the, all the branches of government. And uh, crime was down and so forth. So what's left? Immigration. This is the fear factor. And so it really amped up the whole administration's whole commentary, amped up in anticipation of the election. But you also make the point uh, in the book that, uh, I mean, if this is at its core a deterrence policy, people have to know about it to be deterred. Well, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And in this concept of deterrence, it's really a failure. When someone is being told, if you don't pay us the extortion money tomorrow, you will die, or a member of your family will die, or we will gang rape your daughter, then you flee. And uh, you don't worry too much about the challenges you're going to face because you know that tomorrow someone's going to, some terrible thing is going to happen if you, if, if you stay. Uh, so we've seen uh, uh, surges and decreases uh, in, the, in the flow of refugees. We saw a huge surge as a result of President Trump saying he was going to seal the border. When he said that, when he's going to use emergency power to steal the border, uh, 
uh, those who uh, promote assisting people, coyotes, if you will, assisting people in traveling uh, north, uh, use it to advertise. And there was a tremendous uh, flood of refugees. And the, the president says, oh, here's a crisis, this tremendous flood. Yes, a tremendous flood that he created through his own uh, speeches. Now, the child separation policy, they've rescinded that. They're not doing that anymore, correct? Well, let's be clear. The president took credit for rescinding it, but he did not rescind it. The court rescinded it. And at the press conference, when he said he was rescinding it, the document on his table had nothing to do with child separation because it was the court that had stopped child separation. It was a document that had three different strategies laid out to pursue the indefinite imprisonment of refugee children. And uh, they had a, a strategy for going back to the courts and trying to have the court overturn Flores. Uh, it had a strategy to uh, overrule the Flores settlement agreement through legislation, and it had a strategy of doing it through regulation, these three strategies. So that was where the president turned when the court stopped child separation. If we can't traumatize children by tearing them out of their parents' arms, we'll traumatize them by imprisoning them indefinitely. All right. But, you know, that said, the administration can say our policies are working. Just this week, we learned that illegal crossings at the border are down 60% from where they were in May. That's a huge drop. So isn't that an affirmation that as harsh as these policies are, they are helping the president fulfill what he said during the campaign he was going to do? Not at all. Uh, what we saw was a huge surge and that those May numbers were a result of the president's own uh, public commentary that induced the surge. We normally see a dramatic drop off during the summer because it's a lot of the heat. I will say this, when the president pushed Mexico, Mexico sent a lot of troops down to the border with Guatemala and they also made it much harder for buses to transport people from the southern border of Mexico to the northern border of Mexico. So those two things, in addition to the normal summer drop off, have had a significant impact. So is that a good thing or a bad thing in your view? My view is that when people are fleeing persecution, we have to give them safe harbor and an opportunity to have a fair chance to present their case for asylum status. It is the humanitarian thing to do. It is what America has always done. And we can do it much more effectively. There's bipartisan support for dramatically reducing the backlog in the, uh, the asylum cases. But for families to be able to go through the asylum process, they need legal guidance from when they arrive, and they need access to the ability to get documents from their home country to present their case uh, accurately. And this is where one of the administration's policies which was to barricade the ports of entry and say you cannot cross in until you've gone through a long waiting list. And then if you go through the waiting list and you're given a credible fear interview, you have to go back into Mexico and wait. There's no way people can prepare an asylum case. And so it completely breaks the, the it makes the system completely non-functional. They're breaking the system instead of making it work better. Senator, I want to ask you about an anecdote in your book, because you didn't just go down to the border uh, to attract attention to this issue in dramatic fashion. You actually tried to work the system in more conventional ways. And specifically, you reached out to your former colleague in the Senate, Jeff Sessions, who you said earlier in the in this conversation, announced the zero tolerance uh, policy, and you wanted to talk to him, I think you put it, Jeff to Jeff. So tell us about that. Well, after I'd been to the border twice, and so this was all in the month of June 2018, I just felt, wow, I don't think the implementing policymakers of the Trump administration really understand the impact they're having in traumatizing kids. And uh, surely if they understood that, they would change their minds about this policy. So I called up uh, Jeff Sessions to talk to him. Uh, we'd been colleagues in the Senate. We'd worked on at least one bill together, a bill that never came to fruition, but nonetheless, we'd worked on it together. And I just wanted to say, this is not working the way you think it is. Let me tell you what I've seen on these trips. And I invited him to go to the border with me. But unfortunately, what I got back were talking points about how child separation was actually a very positive thing because by hurting kids in this fashion, you would discourage immigration 
and thereby other children would be spared the difficulties of an immigration journey. And uh, this has been an argument used by the administration in many shapes and forms, so we couldn't get past the talking points. So, but that raises a, a larger question, and I guess I'm curious, what's your reaction to that? And what was your reaction to the rhetoric uh, that you would hear from the administration? Did it reflect a real callousness toward what was actually happening? Did they not know? Did they not want to know? How do you interpret? And the reason I ask it is because, I mean, the title of your book is America is Better Than This, but... You know, their views may also reflect, and attitudes may reflect the attitudes of millions and millions of Americans. I think when Americans understand that the heart of the strategy was to injure children, they are not supportive of this. I do believe America is better than this. I do believe Americans are going to throw this administration out the next, uh, the next opportunity uh, next year. The uh, basic strategy of saying somehow you're going to protect children from a difficult journey when they're escaping brutal persecution, be it civil war, be it religious persecution, be it starvation, be it whatever, uh, a gang saying we're going to, to kill you tomorrow, people are going to undertake that journey. When you line up the CBP officers on the middle of the McAllen Bridge, as we saw on June 17th a year ago, and say, we're sorry, you don't have a visa or passport, so you have to stay in Mexico, that is a complete violation of the Refugee Convention, and it leaves people little choice but to cross between the ports of entry where the administration said they don't want people to cross. They want them to come to the ports. This is one of the big lies the administration told, said. They said, come to the ports of entry. When people came, they were blockaded. They were left stranded in desperate circumstances. And if, if folks remember the, uh, the picture that was in the New York Times of a father, Oscar, and his five-year-old daughter, Valeria, lying face down in the Rio Grande River, having drowned together with the father's arm around the daughter, and they died after coming to a port of entry and being rebuffed and blockaded. But, Senator, you, you portray in your book and in this interview the people coming, the migrants coming from Central America as refugees fleeing persecution. But the fact is that when those from Central America go through the asylum process, something like 90% don't qualify under current asylum laws. Fleeing economic hardship, which a substantial portion do, is not grounds for being granted asylum. They do not technically qualify as refugees. So if that's the case, then what policies do you have for disincentivizing those people, a substantial majority, from coming through Mexico into the United States? Well, there's a flaw in your presumption. You are correct that on average, depending on the sector, only about 15 to 30 percent of the applicants for asylum win asylum. I think and it's even lower the when they're from Central America, but... Depends a lot by sector. Okay. And uh, it depends also, for example, the rate dropped in half after Jeff Sessions announced a new policy saying those who were victims of gangs, when the gang is a local government, would not be given an opportunity for uh, asylum, and that also those who were victims of domestic violence would no longer qualify as a protected uh, group. So the numbers went up and down a lot over this last year. The burden of proof is on the refugee. It's very hard to demonstrate with evidence what you have been, you know, so let's say the, the gang comes to your door and says, you don't pay us today, we're going to kill you. How do you document that? And so many of the people who do not qualify for asylum, they don't qualify not necessarily because they don't meet the standard in reality, but because they simply can't generate the evidence necessary to establish the burden of proof. But the answer to your question is, hold the asylum hearings on a timely basis with the ability to get the information you need. And if you don't qualify, you get sent home. And if that's done on a timely basis, that serves as a disincentive for attempting to come with an insufficient case in the first place. So how do you do that on a timely basis? I mean, what kind of resources do you need for that to happen? When families come across the border, they have no idea how to put together a case. And often these cases are deferred and deferred and deferred. And so you, you have, as I talk to experts in the, the field, they say, listen, if you have assistance so that you have the ability to, you, ha you have the fax machine, you have the, the access to a computer, you understand what kind of information you have to put together, you should be able to have an asylum hearing within four to six months. So in four to six months, you either get a green light or a red light, you get a red light, you go home. 
At uh, one of the recent uh, Democratic debates uh, a few months ago, Congressman Castro, one of the candidates, uh, made it clear he supports decriminalizing border crossings, basically repealing the law that makes it a criminal offense to illegally cross the border. I think eight of the Democratic presidential candidates raised their hands and supported that. Do you, would you have been one of those raising your hands to basically repeal the law that makes it illegal to cross the border? In the law, there are two lines that give the executive branch flexibility. They're almost identical, except one has a criminal penalty, one has a civil penalty. And that flexibility has been used tremendously by previous administrations when it is a case of someone in egregious fashion crossing the border, maybe they're, they're smuggling people or they're smuggling drugs or they're involved in some other Well, that's a different strategy. criminal statute that would well, be addressed but it by also drug smuggling. It also allows the ability to use the criminal penalty for crossing the border in those circumstances. And so you, you have that. In most cases, administrations have said, if you're simply fleeing persecution and you cross or otherwise trying to enter the... You get a civil penalty, you get, you get deported. I think the flexibility makes sense given the broad diversity in which uh, people cross the border. And so I think that was an oversimplified debate. What I think uh, I'm not comfortable with is the way this administration has decided to use that flexibility. So just to be clear, are you for open borders? No, in fact, uh, I've supported a tremendous amount of uh, funding for border security. I've argued that when we had the bipartisan uh, immigration bill here in the Senate, we had, and by the way, that we had a group of eight, four Democrats, four Republicans that put it together. It included people like Marco Ruby on the Republican side and, and John McCain. I think Lindsey Graham was part of that group of eight. That immigration bill was security at the border, security for overstaying visas. Far more people are undocumented in the U.S. from overstaying visas than from crossing a border. Security at the point of employment, but then also tremendous flexibility in utilizing visas to meet job uh, demands in the agricultural sector, the high-tech sector, and also a path for those who came before that bill to be able to, to have a immediate uh, legalization uh, assuming they had met certain checkpoints, hadn't committed crimes and, and so forth, and an eventual path to citizenship. That was a grand compromise, made a lot of sense. It was totally bipartisan. It's the Republicans in the House that torpedoed it because they do not want to fix this broken immigration system. They want to keep campaigning on it from here to eternity. So if you could do three things, if you could wave your magic wand and get the Congress uh, to pass three reforms uh, to change the immigration system and to humanize the uh, system that we have right now, what would those three things be? Well, focusing specifically on the families arriving at the border, no border blockade, immediate assistance with legal help, and expeditious asylum hearings. I, I noticed one of your proposals was that the uh, border agents should meet each child who crosses the border with a smile. Yes, you know, uh, a smile and a, and a cold bottle of water and some good treats. You know, I got, there's a group all over Lado that's been escorting children across the border in the San Diego sector. And when I went to Tijuana, I heard story after story about how the San Diego sector had been blockading the children, leaving them stranded. And wasn't even, they were not even allowed to put their name into the book, which is the system for someday getting a credible fear interview. So the children were in worse shape than the families or the single adults. And so I called up and talked to the head of the sector. And uh, they said, oh, our policy is to treat these children like they were our own. We would never blockade them at the border. And it was only a few weeks later that I got a call from Al Otro Lado. Uh, it was in, late in the evening here. It was probably about 7 p.m. or so on the, on the border in Tijuana. And they said, we've got three French-speaking children. They're being blockaded at the border. They're being refused to cross the line. Uh, they're terrified because often when these blockades occur, it's the Americans calling the Mexican officials to come and grab them. And once they're grabbed by the Mexican, who knows what happens to them? Because they may well be deported to very horrific circumstances in quick order. And so I said, okay, well, hand them a cell phone. I'll talk to them. I'll tell them what their boss told me about their policy, which was to treat these children like they were members of their family, to welcome them warmly. And um, I could hear as they talked with the, the CBP officials, the, C, the officers saying, I don't want to talk to some senator. I only want to talk to the president of the United States of America. And I said, OK, listen, just put me on speakerphone and just hold up your phone, put it on maximum volume. I'll talk to them and I'll tell them what their bosses told me is the policy they're supposed to be following. And uh, so I did that. They did that. And... Um, 
the guards, American guards disappeared, came back in 10 minutes or so and, and let the kids across. But we should not be stranding children in horrific circumstances. Imagine your child there, no family, no friends, no fun, streets of Tijuana where you're subject to rape, assault, a predatory sex, child sex industry. It is absolutely unacceptable that we should treat any human beings and certainly not children in this fashion. Switching gears, you remember the Foreign Relations Committee, John Bolton has been removed as National Security Advisor. Is the country and the world better off with him gone? Uh, John Bolton should never be near any form of uh, policy. He played a big role in uh, pressing for the, the war on Iraq on the mistaken notion that there were weapons of mass destruction being crafted. There were uh, classified details that we never saw in, in public uh, about other details on how he facilitated and pressed in that effort. He, you know, to mislead, help mislead the American public, misjudge the situation, create chaos that has haunted us with the blood of thousands of, of Americans and massive amount of treasure and instability as far as the eye can see. Uh, this is, John Bolton played a big role in it. So is that a foreign policy and personnel decision for which you would like to congratulate Donald Trump? Yes, uh, I must say in this case, uh, I, I questioned why Trump would ever hire him in the first place, and, and Trump came around to seeing my point of view. <laughs> <laughs> so for the record, you are applauding the president for coming around to your there point of view. On another Trump-related question, the House Judiciary Committee has just voted to move forward with what Chairman Nadler is describing as an impeachment inquiry as a member of the Senate that would have to deal with this? Were the House to vote for impeachment? Do you think it's a wise move? It's uh, late and it's uh, not expeditious enough. They should move a lot faster. Let me point this out. If you had asked me a few months ago, I would have said, let's see what the Mueller investigation says. The Mueller investigation lays out four cases of obstruction of justice. It lays out the details of what is, has to occur for a felony obstruction to occur. There has to be an act of obstruction. There has to be a connection or nexus, as, as they say, to a court proceeding. And there has to be intent for the one to affect the other. And in, in uh, Mueller's report, he goes through in extensive detail the evidence on these, on a whole case, a whole set, more than 10 cases of obstruction. And in four of them, he finds massive evidence on all three points. And so to me, that's like carved into the Supreme Court are those, those four words, equal justice under law. So obstruction for you would be Article 1 of an impeachment yeah, and, uh, You know, it's, it's laid out so absolutely clearly. But now, my first, my first political act in high school, junior in high school, get the evening newspaper. That's back when cities often had a morning newspaper, an evening newspaper. I'm a blue-collar kid, so we had the evening newspaper. And I, I read that Vice President Spiro Agnew had been convicted of bribery, of taking $100,000 in bribes. And what was his penalty? $10,000. And I'm like, are you kidding me? If you're, you're famous, you get to keep 90% of the proceeds of your crime? What kind of a justice system is that? I mean, ordinary people are, are sent to prison for five years for stealing an apple. And so I was outraged. I wrote a letter to the newspaper, uh, and they, they published it. And um, I'm just like, where is, I mean, it's core to our nation, the idea that people are held accountable no matter their status. In this case, Criminal conduct is laid out in extensive detail. Only the House can address this because the Department of Justice absolutely will not address it. It has to be the House. They're the only ones left. And if they're not going to act, they undermine a significant institution in America, this concept of equal justice. But the question was, Senator, whether it was a wise move. We are in September of 2019 on the eve of a presidential election year. And so at this juncture, you say they should have moved earlier, but they didn't. So here we are now. Yeah, Is wisdom it- be damned. And what here's what I mean by that. There are times that we are seeing the complete damage to the executive branch, to the Supreme Court through the theft of a Supreme Court seat, through the Senate by the routine use of the supermajority and the paralysis of the Senate. Here is a case where the Democrats hold in their hands the support for or the destruction of 
a key institution, the idea of equal justice under the law. I think they should move quickly. The idea of four months inquiry, uh, I just kind of grabbed my head and said, what are you thinking? Uh, there's so much information. Hold one month, hold the vote, either impeach or don't, get it done. So if so, they wait four months and vote in December or January, does that make any sense to you? Well, I'm just saying if, if I was in charge, <laughs> I would say speed it up. Well, speaking of being in charge, you explored the idea of a presidential run, decided not to do it. Mike just alluded to the uh, presidential debate that's uh, taking place this evening as, as we record. Is there someone on that debate stage who you're going to back for president? And who is that person? Love them all. I'm glad they're all out there. <laughs> but wait, you were a Bernie guy last time, correct? I did. I endorsed uh, Bernie in the competition with, with Clinton. I was the only senator apart from Bernie to, to do so. So why haven't you endorsed uh, them again Because this time? we have a whole different playing field in, in this situation. And uh, I'm celebrating that so many people are out there sharing their ideas. We're very early in the campaign cycle. I think it's very valuable to hear from everyone from all these different directions, have those ideas on the table, let their personalities emerge, their, their momentum of emerge. And um, I think it's a very healthy thing. But just to kind of narrow the field for you, I mean, there is this divide in the party between progressives and those candidates who may be a little more moderate, a little more, they might say, pragmatic. Mainly um, Vice President Biden. Vice President Biden. Are you willing to say here that you uh, maybe fall more on the progressive side? You'd be more likely to back an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders than a if, if you Vice don't, President Biden? If you don't know where I stand in the spectrum, you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> okay. Okay. Asked and answered. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Senator. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank You're you. very welcome. Thanks to Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley and The New Yorker's Susan Glasser for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on YahooNews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.